Hello everyone, it's your host here, Marcel. Last week, we wrapped up our discussion on freedom and mass incarceration with Jason Lydon. If that sounds interesting to you, then check out Jason in episode 8, part 2, as well as the work of Black and Pink. They just might have a chapter in your city that you can get involved in. And regardless, you should check out their pen pal program. So, I say this with a heavy heart, but this week will be the final episode of Season 1 of Defining Equity. So after some really amazing guests and conversations, I wanted to end the season with an ode to mental health and self-care. At the end of the day, in this work and outside, we have to be gentle to ourselves and take care of ourselves to fully sustain ourselves through the work and beyond. And so, for this episode, I brought along a mental health expert to talk about just that. This week, we'll be joined by Xanthia Johnson, and she'll be talking about the mental health practice she started to center LGBTQ people of color. It was a magical conversation, so sit back, enjoy, and I'll see you all at the end of the episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Defining Equity, a show meant to center and celebrate those living at the margins. Today, we're going to be having a conversation about mental health, harm reduction, and stigma, and discuss the elements needed to create a more just and inclusive mental health infrastructure. So to do that, today we are joined by Xanthia Johnson, the creator of a space known as Urban Playology. Urban Playology is a space that provides transformative psychotherapy to outliers and unique families. Urban Playology specializes in providing psychotherapy and expressive arts therapy care to LGBTQ folks in the DC metro area. At Urban Playology, it is an honor to bear witness to your story. So without further ado, Cynthia, everyone, how are you? I'm well, Marcel. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, why don't we just like start off by having you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, I live in the DMV. I used to live in DC, lived here for many years, and then moved out a little bit further Mm -hmm. so that I could, you know, be my best self in the work here in the city. Mm -hmm. And so I live in the suburbs. And what else? Oh, just like, I don't know, any like fun, quick facts about you? Like, what's your sign? Like, I don't know, anything like cute. Well, I'm a Sagittarius. I'm a Sagittarius. Mm -hmm. And I love to cook. Hmm. What kind of things? Well, I'm originally from the South. Mm -hmm. So I like doing my own renditions of traditionally Southern cuisine, Mm -hmm. like collard greens, Sweet potatoes. I like putting my own healthy spin on those kinds of foods. Got you, got you. Interesting. Hmm. So yeah, I'd love to hear more about your background. You know, you mentioned you're from the South. So do you mind just like, I guess, walking us through like who you were as a kid, kind of describing like where you grew up and your family, things like that? Sure. Mm -hmm. Well, I was born in Philadelphia Mm -hmm. and then my family moved because of work. Mm -hmm. We moved to California. Okay. And we were there for a while, and then we moved back east. And so I spent most of my time in North Carolina and Southern Virginia. And I always say Southern Virginia because when I came this way to go to undergrad, it was made very clear to me that there's a difference between Southern Virginia and Northern Virginia. And I was yeah. like, what's the difference? But It's still they, Virginia. They, like, <laughs> you know, oh, no. And when I came up here, they were really clear. Like, Southern Virginia is Southern Virginia. Northern Virginia is Northern Virginia. So I always say that I spent most of my upbringing in Southern Virginia. Got you. Mm-hmm. And then in terms of who I was as a kid... I like to do magic tricks. I like, <laughs> yeah, my magic tricks didn't really ever go very far, but <laughs> <laughs> I liked trying. I liked climbing trees and mm-hmm. riding my bike and playing, you know, make believe and pretend mm-hmm. and listening to music, listening to my parents' records. Mm, what kind of records were you into? Well, I kind of had to listen to whatever they were playing. That's fair. <laughs> um, and I'm kind of dating myself. We listened to, you know, R&B, soul, music, mm-hmm. gospel. Got you. Got you. Do you have like a favorite song, I guess, from that era? Mm, I don't know that I have a favorite song, but I definitely remember listening to the emotions mm. and playing them on repeat. Oh, my God. 
uh, best of my love is just mm-hmm. forever just love, just love. right <laughs> like to this day, i mean current day literally i'm gonna go for a run later and likely listen to that song like, I, I can't just... believe you with your millennial self even know that <laughs> i'm so impressed thank you thank you yeah honestly pretty much all i listen to is like yeah records that my parents used to play growing up so similarly it's like a lot of like R&B, um, like hip hop, stuff like that. So yeah, it's, it's a little, I guess, atypical, but I'm just super into it. But yeah, and I'm curious, what were your parents like? What were my parents like? Well, my parents are hardworking folks. They grew up in Alabama. Mm-hmm. And so they instilled in me the value of hard work. Mm-hmm. And they made a lot of sacrifices so that I could have a chance at a life that would be good and happy and useful and whole. Mm-hmm. And so I am you know, grateful to them for that. I know that it could not have been easy to leave all that they knew in search of uh, new life, you know, elsewhere. And so I think about that a lot. And, you know, when I was, when we were just talking about the the music piece, you know, you have no idea how much your childhood is going to shape and impact your life trajectory. Mm. I had no idea that that same music, listening to that music at age four or five, you know, that I would come back to that Mm -hmm. all these years later and really enjoy it and enjoy it on a different level because now I have lived more life. Right. So that's really cool. So I'm grateful to them for introducing me to to different genres of music, mm. but for also to play in their records. Yeah. Interesting. Hmm. That definitely resonates a lot because it's funny, when I was younger, you know, listening to a lot of my parents' records, like, it's not like I didn't like it, but I didn't really, it wasn't really, I guess, noteworthy in a lot of ways. I was just like, oh, it's just like what they play, like whatever. But now it's just, yeah, it always, it always just like brings me back. I think a part of it is just because, you know, since I don't live, you know, in the same city as my parents anymore. It's always like that piece of nostalgia that kind of like makes me think of them and just my family and all of that. So yeah, definitely, definitely resonates. Um, so before we jump into talking about mental health on defining equity, we like to like get to know people, see what it is that like kind of got them to the work. And so I have like a little, you know, icebreaker question that I love to ask all the guests. So basically I have three questions of which you can answer one or all of them, whatever makes you feel the most like you. So The three questions are, what was a dream you used to have all the time? Who was your childhood best friend? And how would a high school teacher describe you? So dream you used to have all the time, childhood best friend, and how a high school teacher would describe you. Hmm. These are great questions, Marcel. Thank you. (laughs) Well, I'll go with how a high school teacher would describe me because I recently had a conversation with one of my old English teachers Mm. from high school. And I think they would say that I was driven Mm -hmm. and that I was committed and dedicated. I started school early, and Mm. so I was academically ready. But I think, you know, when I look back, I may have, you know, needed some more psychosocial support, more social skills training Mm -hmm. to be able to interact with my peers in a more, I guess, in a more fulfilling way. Right. And so I think that. I gravitated towards teachers who saw that in me and gave me opportunities to excel academically Mm -hmm. and who helped me get better at being a student. Mm -hmm. So I think that's what they would say. Okay. I was driven. Yeah. Did you have a favorite teacher? A favorite teacher. Well, I had favorite teachers... You know, like my kindergarten teacher, Miss Raynor, mm. I can still see her face. It just was really one of the kindest people that I knew. And I've had so many teachers along the way in life. Mm. You know, I, I had some really good teachers. And you know the really good teachers, especially when you experience the ones that, you know, <laughs> like, maybe leave much to be desired. Right. That's, that's, that's no offense to any teacher who might be listening. You know, mm-hmm. teaching is a very brave profession. Yeah, and, absolutely. And it's a noble profession. And so, you know, none of us would be here without teachers. So, you know, there are some teachers that are just so incredibly gifted at the work. Right. And I remember them for sure.
So before we talk about, I guess, some of the work that you do around mental health, would you mind just painting a backdrop of what mental health diagnosis and treatment looks like in this country, especially with respect to queer and trans people of color? Well, managed health care has impacted the way that, I'll just speak for myself, the way that I do the work. Mm-hmm. And when I first started in this work, I was working at what they call a core service agency, which is a public mental health agency. Mm-hmm. And you're required to meet with a person and do uh, what they call an intake. And then during that conversation, you kind of develop a working diagnosis, so to speak, about what's going on with the client. Right. And then you set up goals and get them connected with a therapy provider. I think in one regard, it's it's a positive endeavor to figure out where we are with a client in that mm-hmm. first conversation. At the same time, I think it's really hard to know exactly what's going on with a person in one conversation. Right. And I don't know that we always get a chance to really fully see a person. Where sexual minority folks are concerned, I would say that you have to build trust and rapport with anyone, but especially people of that population and this mm-hmm. population because the trust has been so obliterated in their relationships. And so Mm. that vital piece of information that they would share with you that could really inform the trajectory of treatment Mm. is key. And so I think there's room for growth in terms of how we engage people when we first meet them. I also too don't know that I agree with getting somebody to tell you everything there is to know about them, extrapolating personal information, such personal information, the first time I meet a person. Mm -hmm. I'm still a stranger, Mm -hmm. you know, and there's this belief that the more that we know, you know, the stronger the start, the more we're able to really help you. And I don't know if that's the case for me and my practice at this time. I think it's most important to make people feel supremely embraced, to help them feel as comfortable as possible. It's already hard to accept that you need support and then to act on that need. And so me extrapolating a whole lot of information can be abrasive to the spirit, I think, Mm -hmm. and distracting. And then, you know, the other piece of this is that that information... That diagnostic information informs the financial part of the relationship Mm -hmm. from a public mental health perspective, you know. And so I am still sitting back and waiting to see how this all unfolds Mm -hmm. for, for anyone who is brave enough to say that they need some, some support. Right. Interesting. How long did you work in that, I guess that environment? I did public mental health for over 10 years, Mm -hmm. and so it was community-based. And so if you were at Chipotle and you wanted to to connect there, then that's where I was. If Mm -hmm. you were leaving church on Sunday and that's when you were available to connect, then that's where I was. If you were getting your hair braided (laughs) at the shop and you want to meet there afterwards, then I was there. Mm-hmm. And as adventurous as those times were, it really did help build an infrastructure to my practice as I know it today. And I am so grateful for those days of, of meeting clients where they were mm-hmm. yeah, from Southeast to Northeast, and from Northwest to Northeast. Mm-hmm. Gosh, you. Interesting. So... Tell us about Urban Playology. You know, I'd love to hear like kind of how you got it off the ground, like what it looks like. Some more, I guess, information about the populations y'all work with. Just, yeah, what's the what's the rundown? Well, Urban Playology came as a result of a dream that I had. And my dream would be to be able to fully embrace outliers, unique families, sexual minority folk, and to give them a safe place to be who they were and to actually start working towards destiny, Mm -hmm. towards their destiny. 
We use a strengths-based approach here. And I don't know why I'm saying we is me. I have quite a few people. <laughs> I always say we because I actually do have a, an amazing team mm-hmm. that helps support the mission. But I am the front and center person and the representative. Mm-hmm. And so I really wanted a place that would help people feel as comfortable as they could possibly feel mm-hmm. in order to do the brave work that happens in the therapy room. Mm-hmm. And I was doing that pretty well in public mental health. I saw that there was room for it to be even bigger. Mm-hmm. And in terms of me being able to be my best self in the work, I knew that it would not be doing the public mental health work right. forever. Mm-hmm. And urban playology has been around for now seven years. We were part time for a while, and have been full time for the last three and a half, four years. Mm-hmm. And it's so wonderful to meet the people who make their way here mm-hmm. and to see them grow and learn and change. Mm-hmm. What have been some of the triumphs and challenges with creating a space? Well, I would say that. Anytime you develop a product, you got to make sure all the right people know about your product. Mm. So making sure that we are on social media, you know, at Urban Playology, we always love getting new followers on Facebook and making sure that all the right people know about what's available for them here. And I think the other challenge is that once people hear about us, it's actually convincing them. That it really is what it is. Some Mm -hmm. people, there's so much stigma that is attached to mental health treatment, particularly in communities of color. Mm -hmm. And so getting people to really believe that they can certainly come in here, kick off their shoes, pull out their pickle and peanut butter sandwiches, Mm -hmm. pull off their wigs if they need to, and get down to the business of of feeling better Mm -hmm. uh, without being judged. So those have been some of the challenges. Mm. But I think the challenge is also to help inform the direction, the direction of urban playology. And so much of what we post is about destigmatizing mental health mm-hmm. treatment and it's about empowerment and support. Got you. An unconditional positive regard. Hmm. Could you see yourself expanding urban playology to like outside of the DMV area? Oh, heck yeah. <laughs> Don't give me those kinds of ideas, Marcel. Of course. <laughs> of course. You know, I really, I, I definitely could see that because, you know, when I think about some of the other agencies, organizations that say that they support or cater to this population, I guess what I'll say is this, is that it's important for me to really be the change that I want to see in the world. And I don't want anybody to feel like they can't be who they are or that, that that it's an afterthought, that core part of them, that really important piece of them, that they have to hide that piece. Mm. So we're leading with that. We're leading with who you are. Mm. And for most people, they've been so used to compartmentalizing that this notion that you could have a place where you could be fully integrated and you could practice being fully integrated as an individual. It's so hard to believe. Mm. And so I don't want people to be a number or to be anything other than human when they come here. Mm. And I want them to have a touching human experience. Got you. Where do you see this going in the future? Like a 10-year plan or something like that? Well... You have to stay tuned. We've got some really cool things coming down the pike mm-hmm. for Urban Playology, and I'm excited to see where it's going to take us. Mm-hmm. I think that there's so many different directions, and we're really interested in wellness and building on the work that we've already done and really refining some of the nuances to the brand. Mm-hmm. And so that's really what we're looking to do in 2018, at least. And in terms of a 10-year plan, you know, I guess we'll have to see what happens. 
I listen to feedback and integrate that into the grander schema. And so, you know, we, we shall see. Stay tuned. Okay. You might turn on the news and see us on the news one day. Great. I'm excited. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. So I'm just curious, like what, like what got you into this work? Like working in mental health specifically with like LGBTQ folks and just, yeah. What's the root of Yo, all that? Marcel, I thought I was going to be a doctor. <laughs> and I guess I am a doctor of love. That's uh, so beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> I think I am. And I thought I was going to be a medical doctor, an allopathic physician. Mm-hmm. And then shied away from that because I was distracted by what I thought would be managed health care and didn't realize that I was essentially choosing a synonymous path by choosing to become a counselor. However, I think that I found the profession that was best for me. Mm-hmm. And that worked for everything that I, you know, that just it mirrored my values and my beliefs. And so I just love the field of counseling. There's several different disciplines where mental health is concerned. There's psychology, there's social work, there's psychiatry. Um, those are medical doctors, psychiatrists are medical doctors, and there's counselors. We are considered to be the newer mental health profession. Mm-hmm. And have just as rigorous a training, graduate school training, and I'm licensed as a psychotherapist. And so I chose counseling because I liked being able to practice in a holistic way and in a humanistic way Mm -hmm. and in a collaborative way. Got you. Interesting. I'm just, I'm curious, like, I guess as you were, you know, pivoting into mental health, like, how did a lot of your peers react to that transition from like, wanting to be a medical doctor to going to counseling and psychotherapy instead? You know, I think I made a bigger deal in my head because when I told them, they were like, oh, okay. <laughs> they weren't even tripping over me. They were like, right. okay, girl. You know, <laughs> that's how they were like carrying it. And I was so concerned, like, oh, you know, what are people going to think? Uh, and I was young and I had no idea that people were just, not even paying me any attention about that. They were mm-hmm. like, let, let, let me know how it goes. <laughs> and I was like, really? You know, so I, um, I think that doing the pre-med track as an undergraduate actually really helped me develop the rigor that I would need to sustain a graduate program in counseling. Mm-hmm. And so I can look back now and see how all of that was total destiny in Mm -hmm. terms of what my path would be. And it's been such an amazing career. I have had such an amazing career and continue to have such an amazing career. I just cannot believe the universe chose me to, to do this walk with, with the people that I connect with. So I feel very fortunate. That's awesome. That's wow. That's amazing. I'm sure as you were Going through grad school and like adjusting to this field, there was because I mean, like you mentioned earlier, mental health does have this layer of stigma, particularly in communities of color. So I'm just curious, like, what was your own individual journey like of checking your own biases around mental health or unlearning that stigma? I appreciate this question because, you know, in my mentorship of other therapists, I do think it's important to help them explore what their preconceived notions are about what it means to be a therapist. Mm-hmm. And here's what I'll say. I know that I cannot take a client further than I've gone in my own life. Mm-hmm. And people are intuitive, even when they're hurting, they know when you're about it. Yeah. They know when you have experienced pain, they know when you have worked through your pain. And so For me to do my own work around what it would mean to be a therapist, I had an amazing mentor who is still my mentor today. And it was just very important that I spend the time. And and, and in the program, the program is a very introspective, very reflective program. And so you're writing, you're reflecting, you're writing, reflecting more. And so you develop this muscle Mm -hmm. of recognizing 
biases and, you know, responding to them in a way that helps keep you effective at the work. Mm. And so I would never ask a client to go somewhere I haven't gone in my own life. Right. And in terms of unlearning the stigma, being able to bear witness to someone's journey is a big part of unlearning the stigma. Mm. It's, it's acknowledging the fact that people really do want and need to feel better when they're struggling mm. and that when they have a safe place to do that, then it always happens. It always happens when they feel safe enough. Right. You know, so therapists get a bad rep, <laughs> you know, and I know that everybody has a different perspective on that. So my job is to just be the best therapist that I can be and to try to make sure that the people that experience my work mm. have a positive experience. Got you. Do you still journal? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I journal just about every day. Mm -hmm. I think it's a great way to start the day. I do a journaling and a meditation just to make sure that my spirit is right. Yeah. So that people have something abundant to plug into mm -hmm. when they come in to do their work. And so I do a lot of meditation and journaling. Mm -hmm. And I think it's something that has to be done every day. Yeah. That's real. Yeah, I, I personally also love to journal. I've done it pretty much since high school. And it's just, yeah, it's, I've noticed that like, when I don't journal for a really long time, like it just, like I can literally yeah, feel it. Like I'm just like, things just feel a little bit more chaotic internally. Cause yeah, I'll just, it's so funny. I'll find myself, for example, like I'll be like talking to someone or like, you know, just like hanging out and like I'll say certain things. I'll be like, wow, I didn't even realize I felt that way about XYZ. But yeah, I guess always having that mirror up and, Knowing where I'm at is always really helpful. So I was just curious because I can I imagine that a lot of therapists journal. We, I certainly hope so. <laughs> right. If you are a therapist <laughs> and you are listening to this, I know you don't know me from anywhere, but mm -hmm. hopefully you have a pen and a beautiful notebook <laughs> somewhere. Yes. Your clients will thank you for it. Right. Interesting. Interesting. Huh. So I guess just sort of zooming out and looking at the infrastructure of mental health. You've worked in mental health across different sectors throughout your whole career. So I'm just curious like to hear your thoughts on like just ways that we can improve and fix our current mental health infrastructure and just ways to make it more compassionate, inclusive, particularly to people who might also be dealing with, say, a comorbidity of like addiction in addition to a mental health situation. So basically, how do we fix our current mental health? infrastructure just based off of your experience working in in this field well i definitely think it has to be a collaborative effort i think that as a clinician i do my best work when there is systemic trust in the process and in my professionalism mm -hmm. and so the rules and the procedures the policies and procedures to me need to reflect that trust i'll right. say that the trust in me and trust in the process. Now, one of the reasons I think therapy gets a bad rep is because there was all this focus on the qualitative aspect and not enough qualitative analysis about how effective the interventions could be. Mm -hmm. And so I think that we've made some strides around being able to really assess how well this is working. Mm -hmm. At the same time, it's hard, Marcel. Sometimes people... Just notice, hey, you know, my neck doesn't feel as stiff or, oh, I didn't kirk out on that person in the grocery store. Mm. Or they notice, or the people around them notice that they are maybe more pleasant or just more open mm. or that they're handling things differently. And so how do you quantify that? And, right. you know, how do I as a therapist say, you know, well, give me a number about that. Mm -hmm. I have to trust them. And so the system has to trust me when I say that this is what the client is saying. Mm -hmm. And then I think that systemically we need to be investing in mental health in a way that 
continues to honor the autonomy and independence of a clinician. Mm-hmm. Now I'm not trying to say I'm some rebel. At, you know, I, I couldn't work on a team because I worked on many, many teams for <laughs> many years and thoroughly enjoyed that work. Mm-hmm. I think that the decisions that are made has to include feedback from the people who are doing the work. Mm-hmm. You can't say these are the rules without spending a day to walk in my shoes. Right. You can't say that. That's not fair. And urban playology is so much about social justice. It has to be fair. Mm-hmm. It has to be a fair exchange. It has to be an honorable exchange. Mm-hmm. And so in terms of being the change I want to see in the world, I try to make sure that that's what's happening in the therapy room. Got you. So I know separately from this interview, you know, we've had some conversations and we both kind of bonded over our interest in harm reduction and mirroring that approach to how we go about providing mental health services. So what's your definition of harm reduction and how does it show up in the work that you do? Well, to me, harm reduction means that we are reducing harm, that we are taking a look at what really is, and then we are negotiating and collaborating and partnering about what this should look like. Mm -hmm. I cannot say that a person should not engage in sex work if I'm not paying their bills. Mm -hmm. I cannot do that. I cannot say stop smoking without helping a person process some of the things that make them smoke. Right. And so to me, harm reduction is about acknowledging there's this reality that's sitting right here in front of us. Now, if this is something that you want to change or you want to work on, or that is somewhat of a concern to you, how can we massage it so that it's not distracting you from your destiny? Mm. How can we massage it so that you feel more comfortable in it as you evolve Mm. so that you are not regretful in a way that keeps you from moving forward. Right. And I think as a therapist, I have to be open to hearing anything a person has to share with me about the way that they live their lives. And it's not for me to judge them about that. So I know that there are some other larger systemic considerations that go along with things like smoking or alcohol consumption or what have you. Mm. It's just been my experience that when you truly partner with people and give them the support that they, the loving support that they deserve, they usually find their way around what's, what's most comfortable and what they can do. Mm. See, therapy is supposed to be supportive and it should be about helping people feel hopeful about what they can honestly and realistically do. Right. Okay. It's not supposed to be this, you know, this is my opinion. It's not supposed to make them feel worse than they felt when they came to us. Mm-hmm. Mm. That makes sense. That makes sense. You should uh, always be gifting people with the gift of hope. Right. Yeah, and it kind of just goes back to this idea of, yeah, just trusting people, trusting people to make the best decisions that they can in any context, and just being supportive along the way. So it's really interesting. So, you know, the show is called Defining Equity, and, you know, a lot of my personal interest revolves around this idea of health equity. So I'm just curious, like, how would you say that your work contributes to, to health equity? Well, I certainly want to make sure that Quality mental health services are available to anyone who seeks them out, especially if they're seeking them out here and we're destined to work together. Mm -hmm. And so that is important, making sure that it's accessible and that it is a quality experience Mm -hmm. based on everyone's feedback. I think that's important. Mm. And making sure that people feel heard throughout the process is part of how we help people see themselves Mm. fully. And so 
for me, defining health equity is basically being at the top of therapists I would want to see. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. Or that I would want someone that I care about to be able to see. Right. And that's someone who treats them with kindness, courtesy, respect, and who supports them. So, great conversation. One, I just... Mental health is something that, it's a more recent interest of mine, but the more I learn about it and the more I talk to people who are specialists, it's just, it's, uh, it's just so... So fascinating and like it's just unfortunate that the infrastructure as it exists currently can be lacking in a lot of ways, but it's also really great to hear that there are spaces like these that prioritize wellness and personhood and things like that. So I'm just, you know, I'm curious to hear like what are some things that you're involved with outside of the work? Some things you do like maybe on the side or just how you unplug, all of that good stuff. Everything I do in life is about reaching that sweet spot of Radical happiness. This work brings me radical happiness. Mm -hmm. My personal life brings me radical happiness. And, you know, to me, you're either moving towards radical happiness or somewhere else. And Mm -hmm. we don't have a lot of time on this earth. And so being able to be as happy as you can be and doing whatever it takes to be able to do that is important. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about narcissistic happiness where you <laughs> run into the back of somebody's car and just say, all right, well, <laughs> good luck. <laughs> Congratulations. Oh, no. <laughs> you got a new shiner on your car. No, <laughs> I'm talking about the happiness that is unapologetic and that is self-embracing and so for me that's my meditation you found me in the woods somewhere Mm -hmm. you know being one with the nature i love me a sunrise a sunset Mm -hmm. i love journaling i love writing just recently actually before meeting with you just received word that something that i wrote evoked such a response in someone that they wrote a letter to the editor of the publication about my wow. piece. And so there was some radical happiness that happened for me there just to be mentioned in that way. Let me know that I was affecting positive social change. And, you know, I can be found in a yoga studio somewhere mm-hmm. doing a downward dog or <laughs> like a warrior too. A warrior like a- <laughs> yeah. Doing a, a sequence or two. Mm-hmm. I love me some yoga. And, you know, listening to good music. You might see me at a stoplight blasting my my music. Mm-hmm. I actually just got a chance to see Can I Be Me, the Whitney mm-hmm. Houston special. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. I love watching documentaries that mm-hmm. give us an, you know, a window into the complexities of the mind and to the complexities of life stories and really enjoyed seeing such an amazing pop icon in a different light. Mm -hmm. And it motivated me seeing that actually really motivated me to make sure that I was doing my best work Mm -hmm. because it was clear that she was in a lot of pain Mm -hmm. and it was palpable through the, through the screen, actually, through the TV screen. And so I enjoy that, too. Mm-hmm. I enjoy spending time with my family mm-hmm. and spending time in solace. Mm-hmm. I think some of my most meaningful life moments have come when I was... You know Dr. Seuss. Mm-hmm. He used to spend time by himself. That's how he wrote those books. Mm-hmm. He used to spend time by himself and look at what a legacy he has left behind. So I am an introvert by nature and enjoy time to reflect. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Wow. Mm-hmm. I love that 
How'd you narrate it? In radical happiness, you said? Radical happiness. <laughs> I... Radical happiness. <laughs> Unapologetic. And you'd be surprised at how much your childhood, how much the messages that you receive from society infiltrate your psyche and infiltrate your soul, your spirit, your being. Mm-hmm. And so then you're kind of living this life that is patterned after something that you may not even have always envisioned for yourself, but it's the only vision that you ever saw. So you just, you just try to make that unfold as opposed to being open to what would unfold for you. And it's so subtle, Marcel. Mm -hmm. It's so subtle how we can wake up and realize that we've been living for somebody else. Mm. And that person is not ourselves. Sometimes we actually think we're living for ourselves, but we're still living for other people. And in communities of color, family is important. Mm. You define yourself by family. You define yourself by making mom and dad and auntie and uncle proud. Mm. So what does it mean to live more fully in yourself, in your body, in a way that you're proud of you, that you're not proud of yourself because they are proud of you, that you're proud of yourself because you are proud of you. That's very different. You see that? Mm-hmm. And for some of us, it just takes some time to kind of tease that apart, mm-hmm. those threads, those tendrils apart. Where am I to excavate? Where where am I? Mm-hmm. Where am I in all of this? So radical <laughs> happiness. If you want to know what my face looks like right now, my eyes are closed. <laughs> my chin is in my hand. My lips are upturned. <laughs> radical happiness. Mm. Wow. What a word. Oh my gosh. Hmm. That? Wow. Okay. Interesting. Definitely going to journal on that later. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I, I mean, I want to ask you how you, like how you self-care, but I feel like you kind of touched on a lot of that already just through like music and journaling and just this whole process. So do you have any like, like guilty pleasures or anything like that? Like anything just like hair-free that you engage in? We're sort of just like amidst this radical happiness wave outside of work. I love me a Snapchat now. Really? I love Snapchat. Oh my God. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if you think about it from an expressive arts perspective, Snapchat gives you this nice platform to kind of really see where you stand in a day. Mm -hmm. And for me, it just reminds me who I would want to be reaching out to, who I would want to be Snapchatting with, and what part of myself I want to share with them at any moment. And for me, it's different than, you know, Instagram or Facebook. I feel like it gives me a window into a part of myself that enjoys being carefree. Mm-hmm. It gives me access. It gives me permission to access that. part. Right. And so I love me some Snapchat. We're going to Snapchat after this. Okay. Good to know. That's so funny. I used to like, so I graduated from school, like from undergrad two years ago. And I used to be, like, really into Snapchat then. And then I don't know what happened, but I just, like, stopped using it. But, yeah, it was really fun. Okay. Mm. Interesting. Did you move on to something else? Or just was it Snapchat replaced by something else? Or Not really. I mean, it's funny. I still take a lot of pictures. And, like, it's so interesting because, like, I'll, like, be out with friends and, like, we'll take a picture. And I'll be like, oh, like... Would you mind sending that to me? And then people are like, oh, we're going to put it on Facebook? And I'm like, oh, no, I just I just want it. And they're like, what? <laughs> so, I, yeah, I'm not really a huge social media type of person. Mm-hmm. But Snapchat was, I do remember it was, like, really, I don't know, it was, like, kind of fun. So I think if I were to use social media, like, something like Snapchat, it, like, it's so, like, it's so quick and, like, just, like, instant. I mean, literally the snaps go away. Like, you just... Plug in one. In time right, exactly. Lit. Right. Uh-huh. So, yeah, I'm not opposed to getting back into it. I just, I don't know, it's just been kind of a minute. Hey, but look, the thing about it is that you get to do whatever your spirit is leading you to do. Mm-hmm. 
So if you had a period of Snapchat, Snapchat probably isn't going anywhere. Snap, you can pick up Snapchat. <laughs> True. Whenever you, you don't even have to Snapchat with me after this this meeting. Mm-hmm. If you don't want to, <laughs> this podcast. This this is your life. You can you can excuse yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, but I I think it is important to know what would be synonymous for you with Snapchat. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. I'll keep that in mind with Snapchat and everything. So, you know, I guess like as we wrap up, you know, we've talked a lot about reflection and your background and everything. So, you know, I always kind of like to ask this question to guests. I guess when you look back on who you were as a child, do you think that the person you are now is like pretty in line with the person you thought you would be then? And then kind of on a similar vein, if you could say something to a younger version of yourself, no, no age in particular, I'll leave that up to interpretation. What would you say? Well... In terms of being the person that I thought I would be, I don't remember what I thought I would be as a child. Mm-hmm. I do remember that I wanted to affect positive social change in the world mm-hmm. and that I wanted to leave a legacy, I guess. And for people to remember my name, it's not hard to remember Xanthia, but <laughs> I do remember that. I do remember wanting to affect positive social change in the world. And I think that I'm doing that. I work very hard to make sure that I'm doing that. And then in terms of what I would say to my younger self, I would say, girlfriend, you have everything you need to be optimally successful in the world. You have everything you need in order to be optimally successful in the world, Mm. you know, and sometimes you can get distracted by another person's journey and, you know, what do they say? Being all up in the Kool-Aid without knowing the flavor, you can be all, (laughs) all over there and not focused on yourself. Right. And so the fact that I have, reach this sweet spot of being able to focus on myself and focus on what I believe in and manifesting that at every turn is key. Mm -hmm. I think it's progress. And I think I would also too say that there's a difference between privacy, and secrecy. Mm. And I would say that the privacy is a choice and secrecy is always about shame. Mm. And, you know, we all come by way of our stories nobly. We all come by way of our life experiences nobly. Our life experiences are our life experiences are our life experiences. Mm. That's just that. You know, so... Knowing and believing and trusting that you have everything you need to be optimally successful in the world. And success can be anything you want it to be. It Mm -hmm. doesn't have to be just about your professional endeavors. It can be about anything you choose. And there are so many different ways to get to the same place. Mm -hmm. And so to... You know, your listeners, I hope that they can be gentle with themselves and and keep an open mind and be excited about what's to come, even mm-hmm. if they're in a painful place or in a difficult place. Pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. And, mm-hmm. you know, we're all in this thing together. And I'm doing it with you. Wow. What a word. And yeah, I just have a hunch that like Xanthia of the past will be will be proud of not only what you just said, but just like the legacy you've been able to leave to date. And who knows, all the things coming down the pike is about to be yeah, the world's not ready. Interesting. <laughs> wow. That's well, thank you so much, Xanthia. This was really awesome. Like, honestly, I've I mean just learned so much just like talking to you and 
I really do appreciate you like holding space to share your journey and your insights. And so, well, thank you uh, too, Marcel. You got me to tell all my business <laughs> on the podcast. I was happy to do that. Also, too, want to give a shout out to Dante Charles Beaumont. You know who you are mm. in East Atlanta, and just giving you a shout out. So, mm. uh, want to do that too. I love that. I love that. So, I guess, like, how can folks connect with you? The best way to reach me is by phone, I would say. Mm -hmm. Uh, Emails get buried a lot. We get a lot of emails, and I'm only one person. Mm -hmm. And so if I don't respond, that means that I didn't see it. (laughs) That's what it means. And so the best way to reach me is by phone, which is 240-949-4168, and then if you want to use an email, you can certainly do that and send mm-hmm. your email. It's urbanplayology at yahoo.com, all one word. Urbanplayology, all one word, at yahoo.com. Check me out online. Mm-hmm. Uh, follow me on Instagram. I need more Instagram followers. <laughs> or so they say. No. Um, <laughs> I don't know. And um, <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> Okay, that makes two of us. (laughs) And um, I just want to wish all your listeners peace. Hmm. Peace. I love that. Also. And namaste. Yeah. What's your Instagram handle, by the way? Urban Playology. There we go. Wonderful, wonderful. Urban Playology for that, too. Well, yeah. Well, on that note, this was an amazing conversation. Thank you so, 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 so much. And to the listeners out there, yeah, just be gentle with yourselves, be kind to yourselves, and yeah. I guess that's that's that. So yeah, Marcel is an amazing human being. Oh God, I just want to say that too. <laughs> uh, he is taking the world by storm, and I feel really fortunate to get to see what what's in store for you. So thank you, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Okay, see you, everyone. Bye. 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 you all enjoyed Xanthia's wisdom during this episode, and especially for listeners in the DMV area, definitely check out Urban Playology and the amazing work they do. Like I mentioned earlier, this is sadly the last episode of Defining Equity, at least for now. But I wanted to take a moment to thank everyone who took the time to come onto the show to have some very necessary and interesting discussions around the systems we interact with on a daily basis and how we can all work to be compassionate in our everyday lives. Just as these systems were created, they can be reimagined. If you have any questions or thoughts on the episode or even some ideas for season two, feel free to get in touch with us at definingequity at gmail.com. Again, this is Marcel, and I'll see you all soon. Bye. Bye.